Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. Welcome back to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. For this episode, we're going to be travelling back in time to the world of the ancient Greeks and Romans, as I am joined by our very own Dr. Jane Dracop. Now, Jane is someone whose research I've been aware of for quite a while, having read her recent edited volumes, examining the representation of women in classical video games, as well as her book about Cleopatra's daughter. So you can imagine how excited I was when Jane agreed to come on the podcast today to talk to us about her research into the use of prosthetics and assistive technology in the ancient world. This was an absolutely fascinating discussion. We touch on so many different things and I think we potentially only really scratched the surface, but I hope you are as enthused and inspired as I was when you listened to this. I'm Dr Jane Draycott. I'm a lecturer in ancient history in the classic subject area in the School of Humanities. This is a discussion that I've been really looking forward to. We're going to be talking about prosthetics, assistive technology and disability in antiquity. So to start with, I thought we could maybe just establish what we actually mean when we talk about a prosthesis or assistive technology. How would you define those things? That is a very interesting question, to be perfectly honest, because there isn't really a fixed definition. What you might expect a prosthesis to be is something that replaces a missing body part. So if you have lost your hand you have a prosthetic hand and the idea is that that in some ways replaces your hand both in the form so people look at you and they see that you have a prosthetic hand and also in the function so you are able to do things with your prosthetic hand that you you could previously do with your own hand and that's you know that that, that is the that is the general idea that is i think what most people would agree a uh, prosthesis is but there are some blurry lines because of course if you have a, a congenital condition that means you were born without a hand then if you use a prosthetic hand then you're not replacing something because you never had it in the first place and, and a lot of people who have congenital absence of limbs don't use prosthetics because they find it strange to to suddenly have a hand or a foot or whatever other body part and they also don't necessarily feel the same need that somebody who did once have a hand or a foot or, or whatever does so you you have cases where people don't use them and then you have cases where somebody let's say with their leg or with their foot in some cases people have not in fact lost their leg but they have some kind of freezing of the joint which means that their leg is not in the place where it needs to be to help them walk so they wear a prosthetic limb of some kind to help them with their walking but they're not replacing their leg because their leg is still there there are all sorts of interesting uh ways to look at this topic and and the idea that what is the purpose of a prosthesis? Is it supposed to replace the item in its appearance? Is it supposed to replace it in its function? Or is it doing something else entirely? And for me, as an ancient historian working on prostheses in antiquity, my view of all of those things is somewhat different to somebody who today is working in the NHS and is actually a prosthetist and is making prosthetic objects for people or somebody indeed who has experienced some kind of, of accident or injury or medical condition that requires the services of a prosthetist. When I was reading your book, Prosthetics and Assistive Technology in Ancient Greece and Rome, and it's a very good read and our listeners should go out and read it. One thing that really interested me was that you talked not just about prosthetic limbs and things, but you're also talking about things like wigs and teeth. 
Yes, well, exactly. I mean, this again, this this comes into this idea of what is a, a prosthesis and what does it do and why do people use them? And yes, if you ask random people on the street, they might immediately think, oh, hand, arm, mm-hmm. leg, foot. But actually, if you ask somebody who's undergoing chemotherapy, who has exactly the same medical perspective on having suddenly lost something that they once took very much for granted, then a wig or a hairpiece is doing exactly the same thing. It is replacing something that you used to have and you don't have anymore. It is doing the same things. You can cut a wig, you can style it, you can do things with accessories and it serves a purpose. It's It looks like your hair and it's also doing the same thing as your hair. It's it's allowing you to express your personality. It's keeping your head warm and your ears warm and your neck warm in, in cold weather. The same for teeth, really. If you lose your teeth, then you need teeth for talking. You need them for eating, smiling. Again, you're replacing something that you had that you need. And these social issues of communicating with other people and, and moving around in the world and wanting to express yourself are just as important as the purely sort of functional utilitarian things like movement or picking things up, especially in antiquity. (laughs) You mentioned the word perspective there, and I think that's something that we should maybe delve into a little bit more. One thing I'm quite curious about is the attitudes and different perspectives and beliefs people in those societies at the time might have had towards the body and what they thought was an average body or an ideal body perhaps I'm quite mindful of the fact that my own perspective and perhaps that of some of our listeners I don't know is maybe shaped by popular culture and how we're representing those different societies and their ideals and their perspectives and how well we're portraying that or not or if we're even spreading any misconceptions about those attitudes or even just what those bodies really look like for my part, I have certainly spent a greater amount of time on games like Assassin's Creed Odyssey than I would possibly care to admit in public. But also thinking about things like film and TV, you know, I remember the absolute furore that there was when 300 was released and you had Gerard Butler and what his body looked like on those posters. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, Gerard Butler's body in 300 is very much the ideal ancient body, but mm-hmm. that was not the normal ancient body. That is the mm-hmm. kind of body that you see in honorific statues of the gods and the heroes and significant historical figures that are put up to celebrate these individuals. But that is not the body that you were seeing if you were walking down an ancient street where people were Uh, malnourished and unhealthy and didn't get to spend all day in the gym because they were too busy trying to survive so we have to distinguish between the ideal body and the normal body and in antiquity there isn't even really a normal body because there is not a, a sort of standard way that people are expected to look because for a variety of reasons people look very different they they do not have access to much in the way of cosmetic surgery or uh, body modifications the way that we do today and even if they do you're not really meant to do them you get judged if you work too hard on your appearance in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome especially if you're a man if you style your hair too nicely or if you wear too much perfume or if you you know show off your your body and particular types of clothing there is a certain amount of judgment that is uh, exercised upon you it's very much that kind of just crawled out of bed look that that's supposed to look good but not great like they spend a few minutes on their appearance but not too long and we find this when it comes to prostheses as well it's interesting because there seems to have been over time a, a, a change as far as prostheses are concerned and then a change back so in antiquity if you were using a prosthetic something it was very important that it didn't look real because the more realistic it looked and the more effort you made to make it look like it was actually part of your body you were actually tricking people you were being dishonest and that that was not okay so if it looked completely different and completely obvious that was fine because you were making a statement you were you were 
showing off your wealth or your sophistication or your fashion or whatever else. And historically, as we get into the sort of the recent past in in the sort of 19th, 20th centuries, when prosthesis use started going mainstream, really, after things like the American Civil War and the First World War and the Second World War, the people who were using prostheses were very, very desperate to pass as normal, complete, uninjured. The idea, the better the prosthetic, the more realistic and naturalistic it looked. So that nobody looking at you would know that that you had been injured or uh, had an accident or something like that. Whereas, of course, now, today, in the 21st century, the more uh, customised and, and personalised your prosthetic is, the cooler it is, the the more people are interested and, and want to talk to you about it. So we've seen this kind of backwards and forwards and up and down in what people want from their prostheses and what, what society wants from prostheses as well. I wouldn't have expected necessarily the idea that in ancient times that you're tricking someone. No, exactly, because it's it's something that we we don't necessarily think of it that way today. Mm. We we don't think of it as as dishonest. We think of it as mm. as a, an entirely acceptable medical treatment, and it's expected mm. if somebody doesn't have a prosthetic, the standard response is is mm. oh why. Why wouldn't you take advantage of this fantastic technology? Why wouldn't you want to be mm. normal? And of course, the the people have very good answers to that because uh, mm. normal is relative. And as far as individualizing yourself goes, I mean, we we want to be as as individual and distinctive and noticeable as possible in in some respects people people want to be admired for their fashion sense and you know both of us are wearing glasses for example and and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know for, for for a long time glasses were something embarrassing that when when you're at school you you'd get teased for wearing glasses whereas at some point fashion designers cottoned on to the fact that well if, if people are wearing glasses we should make them look good uh, so that they mm-hmm. they spend money and and so now we have huge ranges of fashion glasses with people like Kylie Minogue uh, designing in inverted commas mm-hmm. uh, these glasses because it's recognized then that these are indispensable to daily life and if people are going to wear them they want them to look good and uh, mm-hmm. they will pay for that privilege so now glasses are not assistive technology glasses are eyewear and mm-hmm. Some people even wear like just glass lenses in them because they they want the the sort mm-hmm. of cool frames or whatever. I haven't even thought about glasses. <laughs> exactly, people don't because it's yeah. it's become so yeah. standard that that mm. people wear them. They wear glasses or they wear contact lenses. The vast yeah. vast majority of people do not have perfect eyesight, and as as you get mm. older, your eyesight only gets worse, especially yeah. when looking at computers and screens and everything else mm-hmm. all day. So it's a great leveler, actually. It's something that mm. most people will not be completely blind in their lives, but they mm. will have to deal with deteriorating vision. That's the thing about looking at disability in the past, where most people were disabled in some way that we we would consider mm. them to have a disability because of things like malnutrition, poor medical care, hard labor through their lives, stuff like that. Relatively young people, if we look at their skeletons, we can see that they are what we would today consider to be disabled. But in antiquity, they were not considered disabled. They they were just, that was what everybody's life was like. And so these are very blurry lines and shifting terms. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about society's attitudes at the time? There were some areas of life where you would be excluded for having certain types of conditions. So, Mm -hmm. for example, if you were a member of the elite, especially if you were a man, if if you were a male member of the elite and you were expected to pursue a political and a military career, those things involved the ability to hear and to speak. You you had to be part of political discourse. You had to hear people speaking. You had to respond to them. You had to make persuasive arguments in courts, in other areas where decisions were made. And so if you had some kind of hearing or speech impairment, that was really disabling. Whereas if you were a farmer, it was irrelevant really to your day-to-day life so 
what's a condition that disables one person, one sort of person, the same condition does not disable a different person leading a different kind of life. So in antiquity, we do not have this umbrella term disability. Like today we have term disability, you get a badge to put on your car, whether you've got a visible disability or an invisible disability, whatever it is, you know, and you're part of that very broad category of person. In antiquity, it's quite different because there isn't that recognized category. There are certain types of, so for example, if you are involved in warfare and you are injured, then that is perhaps more of a sort of category of person. You have been injured, you have been impaired, you have possibly been disabled through military activity. And that allows you to have a certain status in society. One of the most common injuries for ancient soldiers was the loss of the right hand, because it's the right hand is the sword hand and it's what's out in front of your shield during combat. So we get lots of references in ancient literature to people losing their right hands because the right hand is vulnerable. At the same time, the punishment for military desertion was having your right hand cut off. The punishment for forgery and theft was often having your hand cut off. So if you've got two people standing in front of you, both missing a hand, how do you know if one's a hero, one's a villain, or if they're both heroes or both villains? You, you don't know. It is interesting to think about how this actually worked in society. And disabled people were not automatically marginalised. They were not automatically targeted the way that they can be today. And that's interesting in itself, because I think a lot of people have this idea that there was no disability in antiquity because all disabled babies were disposed of and, and disabled people were, were left to die. And, and this sort of very grim, very sort of view influenced, I suppose, by eugenics and things like that. And, and in antiquity, that was not the case. And as I said earlier, so many people were what we would consider to be disabled today. It's where where would you even draw the line and say, OK, well, these disabilities are acceptable disabilities and these are not acceptable disabilities. It's it's impossible to do. I find it really interesting that the loss of the right hand kind of like transfers across different situations. In terms of using a prosthesis, would one group be more likely to gain one and use one, as it were? So, say, someone that had a military background versus someone that had, say, been in forgery. The people that were the most likely to use prostheses were the wealthy because they they could right. afford to have something specially made to measure for them mm. out of whatever substance they wanted. Maybe wood, maybe metal, maybe ivory, something like that. Although I do think it's fair to say that military veterans were probably more likely to think that way because you weren't automatically discharged from the military just because you were injured. Even if it was something like the loss of a hand, you could remain a soldier and continue campaigning. And the military, whether it was a sort of fairly informal affair or if it was a sort of organised standing army, military activity was accompanied by uh, blacksmiths, people who made armour and weapons. And it's probable that prostheses first sort of arose in a military context because you would have so many soldiers who needed some kind of assistance with with their weaponry because they were no longer able to use it in the way that they had so uh, a lot of our references in ancient literature are to people involved in in military activities getting prosthetics having prosthetics made for themselves which they then would use to continue doing what they had been doing but in a slightly different way and so from there you can imagine it sort of spreading into civilian society once perhaps they did leave the military they would take their prosthetic hand or, or whatever with them and, and people would see it and think oh hang on then <laughs> you know I, I I think I could benefit from something like that. You mentioned ancient literature there one source of evidence that you're dealing with are there any actual archaeological finds and things? There are some yes not as many as you'd like, really. There are far more literary references than there are archaeological artefacts. And I think that's because of issues of preservation. So a lot of prosthetic limbs and even things like, like hair and, and uh, other stuff like that, they would have been made of organic materials. So wood, leather, plant fibres. And the conditions for preservation they have to be either really, really wet, so sort of boggy areas, or really, really dry, so like deserts. 
And so the the prosthetics that we have do come from places like Egypt, where it's very, very dry, or they come from places like certain parts of Britain where the ground is very wet. And probably most of them, as far as limbs were concerned, prosthetic limbs, they would have been made of wood because that was more affordable with the sort of leather accoutrements, and those would have rotted away. The ones that have survived in the archaeological record, generally, as far as teeth are concerned, it's gold and silver, metal, uh, dental appliances, the metal fittings of what would have been wood and, and leather and metal prosthetic limbs. And so they've survived in, in burials and in tombs in such a position that allows archaeologists to kind of reconstruct what that would have looked like when it was all in place. So there are there are some and they are really interesting because they're all different as well, because, of course, you're not getting them from the NHS. You're, you're getting them individually from your local craftsman, craftswoman, in fact. So you are very much choosing what you want. You're, you're designing it for yourself and, and it, no one else has got anything quite like it. So they're all very different. I think you mentioned a coin that had a, mm. sol- was it a soldier and a sh- yeah. he had a shield or something. So this is Marcus Sergius Silas, and he's one of the the best sort of detailed prosthesis users from antiquity. Mm -hmm. And we only know about him from one ancient literary source, and that's Pliny the Elder's Natural History. And Pliny writes about him, not because of his prosthetic hand. That's almost a sort of just a, a throwaway reference. He writes about him because he considers him to be the bravest of men, and he's talking about virtues. And so he considers this man, Marcus Sergius Silas, to be brave because he was involved in the Second Punic War against Hannibal and he had many battles and he suffered many bodily injuries to the point where he could barely move and he had to be helped onto his horse. One of the injuries that he suffered very early on in his military career was he lost his right hand, his sword hand. And so rather than quit fighting, he basically decided he was going to use his sword in his left hand And he was going to wear his shield on his right arm, the opposite way that a Roman would normally wear it. And he would carry on fighting like that. He, a hundred years later, was commemorated by one of his descendants. And this is the image on the coin. He he has his his sword in his left hand. He has his shield on his right arm. And he also has a a severed enemy head as, as well. If you didn't know who he was, you might not, looking at that coin, ever really think oh, hang on, that's the wrong way around. Why is that the wrong way around? It is this sort of very interesting example of how you you put different sources together to give you different parts of the picture. And if you didn't have one of the sources, you would have no idea that anything had ever happened because we don't have any other references to him in ancient literature. So he is a sort of mysterious figure. I mean, the reason that Pliny knows about him is that he read a speech that Marcus Sergius Silas had written, or a speech that he had given, Pliny read a transcript of it 100 years, 200 years later. And the reason that Marcus Sergius Silas made this speech was because his peers were trying to prevent him from participating in religious rituals because of his loss of his hand, because the right hand was very important in religious ritual. You used it to pour wine and, and things like that. And so There is an example of his peers trying to basically discriminate against him because of his uh, impairment and what they saw as a disability and him arguing, well, no, actually, yes, I may have lost my hand, but I'm actually this 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 fantastic military hero and the gods would be lucky to have sacrifices by me. And so we we do get all these different sides of of this one. This this particular person is, is both a military hero, but he is also someone who is a problematic person in his in his own lifetime and it's an issue that was interesting enough to the ancient romans that his speech survived for 200 years for pliny to read it and then another 2000 years for us to read about it today we don't have the speech anymore we just have pliny's account of this whole thing i love the fact that it's not a prosthetic limb that you've got or you know just the literary source it's the fact that it's on a coin i think that's really interesting that it's been commemorated that way. We've kind of talked about men for the most part and military ones at that. What about figures like women, children? Were there any sort of examples in literature or in any of the archaeological evidence of them using prostheses or assistive technology? We don't hear in literature about women using prosthetic limbs. 
And that's partly because of the kind of things that men write about women in antiquity that just wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for them to speculate on what's underneath a woman's clothing. But we we do get lots of references to women wearing wigs and wearing false teeth. And we get a lot of baggage uh, attached to these things. So women get criticised for wearing wigs and wearing false teeth because, as, as I said before, this, this idea that you're trying to trick people into making them think that you're something you're not. And women get accused of this. They, they get accused of, of trying to entice men by tricking them into thinking that they're young and they're beautiful when actually they're these wizened old hags who are really bold and toothless. So there's a lot of, of sexism and misogyny attached to these ideas. As far as impairment and disability generally is concerned, uh, something that's it's interesting is in antiquity, if a woman was infertile, that was a very serious uh, impairment and a, and a very disabling condition for her because that would affect her prospects at marriage or remarriage. It, she wouldn't be able to have children, be a mother. And these were very important things for ancient women to do in, in Greece and Rome. These were how they furthered their family, their husband's family. If women weren't able, weren't sort of suddenly pregnant at the onset of marriage, then they had to do all sorts of horrible things to you know, try and uh, alleviate that. What about children? Were there any examples of children? Children don't get mentioned a lot in ancient sources. It's really interesting that ancient Greek and Roman society just isn't interested in children until they start to actually show signs of being brilliant adults. We don't have a lot of accounts of children doing anything, you know, playing, learning. And there is this idea that if babies were born with visible impairments, then their parents would expose them or, or commit infanticide or something straight away. And well, that's that's not true, because if that, if that were true, there would never be any impaired or disabled adults uh, with with certain types of conditions running mm. around. And we do hear about congenitally blind people, congenitally deaf people, people who aren't able to to walk, things like that. As far as prosthetics for children are concerned, we don't have any descriptions of, of that. We do have some indications that children used walking frames to walk. Mm-hmm. So it's it's possible that if they had mobility problems when they were children, they, at least they would use walking frames. And then as they got older, they would perhaps look for different types of assistive technology because we don't have accounts of adults using walking frames like Zimmer frames or anything else. We only yeah. have depictions of children using them. And that that begs the question, were they not considered to be appropriate for adults? And if you were an adult, well, you could be carried around in a chair, on a litter, you could ride a horse. So possibly you didn't need a walking frame because you had other other ways of getting around. You didn't need to exert your own energy with a walking mm. frame. You could, you could have other people exert theirs on your on your behalf. There is a rather interesting statue of uh, a little girl wearing a wig. And whether she's wearing the wig because of any sort of hair loss is not, you can't tell that from the statue. She does she does have sort of visible tufts of her own hair sort of at her temples that are just poking out. So it's possible that she's wearing it entirely for sort of fashionable purposes. And they've included these tufts to make it clear that she's wearing a wig because she wants to, not because she has to. And in a similar way to statues of adult women wearing wigs, they, they show a little bit of tuftiness to make it clear that there is hair under the wig. I didn't know that about statues having the tufts of hair. I'm going to look at statues in a completely different way now and start investigating <laughs> for hair. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you need to walk all the way around them because especially with um with Rome statues of Roman women, some of the hairstyles are absolutely amazing. They're incredibly <laughs> intricate. And if you walk all the way around the statue, you can see all sorts of stuff going on at the back and hairpins carved in as well holding everything in place it's it's fantastic the hairdressers of ancient Rome were really really Mm -hmm. skilled do you see a similar thing in terms of other artwork that survived from the period yeah there are there are lots of points of commonality between the kind of art that you see in in statues um, and and in high relief and things that you see in frescoes I mean they tend to show different sorts of scenes but they do tend to show fairly conservative 
fashion fashion was was not innovative in in uh, antiquity it seems like people were wearing the the same sorts of clothing for centuries and the hair the hairstyles changed a little bit more but at the same time they were still sort of working with with the same sorts of, mm-hmm. of styles and the same sorts of accessories and ultimately if you were an adult woman who who was married your hair was put up out of the way and it was it was covered mm-hmm. with with your veil you kind of touched a little bit on this earlier talking about people using chairs litters and things like that one thing that really interested me in your book was the idea of living prostheses mm. which was a term that I've never seen before and I was like ah okay um so I was wondering if you talk a bit about the role of enslaved people and formerly enslaved people as well just because I think that's something that again we might not think about today yeah I mean this this is something somewhere there is a very clear not exactly a difference but a difference in perspective so if you have any kind of of accident or period of illness today a big part of your medical treatment involves rehabilitation and you being taught by physiotherapists and physical therapists how to do everything that you used to be able to do but in a different way because the emphasis is very much on we want to make you as good as you were before we want to make you independent we want you to be able to do everything for yourself and when you can't do those things you have carers care assistants uh, to help you and the desirable outcome is that you can do as much as possible both for your own sort of physical health and well-being but also for your sort of mental and emotional health and well-being as well and in antiquity, it's very different. And we, we have to think about it in a very different way because ancient Greece and ancient Rome were slave societies. Slaves, enslaved people were everywhere doing everything. And they did a huge amount of the day-to-day stuff that we take for granted we do ourselves. You know, so, so we get up in the morning and we, we wash ourselves, we dress ourselves, we clean our own teeth, we make our own food, we write our own well not letters necessarily today but you know we write our own emails using our own our own words Uh, we read books to ourselves all of that kind of thing and in antiquity unless you were really really poor that simply wasn't the case affluent people had tens hundreds sometimes even thousands of enslaved people living in their household, doing literally everything for them all the time, taking care of their bodies, taking care of their minds, doing all the domestic drudgery. So in antiquity, if somebody had some kind of accident or some kind of illness and was rendered in some way impaired, I do wonder how much of a difference it made to many aspects of their life because they were already not washing themselves. They were already not dressing themselves, styling their own hair. They did not necessarily make their own food, clean their own house. They didn't even do their own writing or their own reading. And so having people around you doing all of those things, what was the problem necessarily of, of having some kind of physical impairment? And as I said earlier, if, if you needed to fulfill a certain role, so if you needed to be a politician, then obviously you needed to speak for yourself. You couldn't have an enslaved person speaking for you in the Senate. But you could have an enslaved person writing for you and, and, and taking notes of everything that was happening and, and, and writing all your letters. And we, we hear about what could be learning differences in antiquity people that were somehow unable to learn to read or unable to memorize things and they had enslaved people do it for them so this is something I think the the ancient one of the reasons why the ancient concept of impairment disability is is quite different to ours today because we have very different ideas of what is a normal life and a normal lifestyle and the kind of things that somebody has to do to to be part of what is considered to be normal society this is the thing when you're thinking about impairment disability antiquity you you do need to think about enslavement and enslaved people and when we read about people in antiquity doing anything we have to remember that they they were not alone people were hardly ever alone in antiquity they they just don't mention the fact that they had however many enslaved people standing next to them that the enslaved people were just part of the furniture 
and we have to remember that and we have to put them back into the story and and remember the contributions that they made how involved and who was involved in the making of assistive technology so you've mentioned craftsmen and women and obviously in a modern context as you said we've got physiotherapists we've got carers I'm just wondering what the situation was in the ancient world were there any equivalents would a surgeon have been involved no it, it doesn't look like it none of the medical literature that survives mentions prosthetic anything about the closest you get is a couple of descriptions in the Hippocratic Corpus and in Celsus's medical writings of using wire to hold loose teeth in place until the teeth can can regain their their position. So we don't hear anything about um, prosthetic arms, legs, anything. And that's because ancient Greek and Roman doctors did not deal with chronic or incurable conditions because ancient medicine relied very much on your reputation as a healer you you had to be able to demonstrate to people because you were in competition with everybody else who said they were a doctor. So you had to be able to demonstrate that your treatment worked and it worked quickly and it worked permanently. If somebody had a condition that was not something you could cure, you didn't touch it with a barge pole because you didn't want to, to be uh, shamed publicly for not being able to fix it. Ancient prosthesis anything design commission manufacture usage it's nothing to do with doctors and people have to do it for themselves really which is which is why it seems to come out of a military context because it's it's a technical thing it's it's something that artisans do to serve a, a certain purpose at someone's instigation and in in civilian life as as well it would be somebody going to one or, or possibly a combination of artisans and saying I want this. Can you do this for me? And the artisans would sort of work together. You know, the, the woodworker would work with the leather worker, the metal worker as well. And they put something together. And so we do have and we don't have any discussions of, of that either, uh, because we don't find uh, artisans writing their own literature. And we don't have elite writers writing about artisans because they consider them to be beneath contempt because they work with their hands. There's all this snobbery about it. But we do get a few references here and there that, that sort of imply. So, for example, there are references to shoemakers making dildos as well as shoes because it all involves sort of leather and wood and, and things like that. So women who go to the shoemaker can also ask for a sort of under the counter dildo. And if shoemakers are making dildos as well as shoes, well, there's no reason why they wouldn't be making other things. And in fact, I just read this morning and I wish I could have put this in my book. But in the news, a wooden dildo has been found at the Roman Fort at Vindolanda in archaeological excavations. And this is quite amazing for me because I didn't have any actual examples of them to put in my book. I, I had I had images on pottery and I had a few references in ancient literature, but this is an actual life-sized wooden dildo. So there you go. People people were carving things out of wood at, at the fort uh, at Vindolanda. So a military context, uh, a military carpenter made someone a dildo. But anyway, that's a digression. <laughs> but you see new information and new objects are being found all the time. And uh, they're, they're um, giving us different perspectives on the ancient body and the way that people thought about their bodies all the time. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about it. But yeah, I saw that, um, what was it? They thought it was a darning tool originally. Well, this this is the thing. This is, this is, impairment and disability is a relatively new area of academic research. It's only really been since the late 90s that classicists and ancient historians were, were even thinking about it, let alone writing about it. And it's only really been in the last 10 years or so that books and articles have started to appear in in significant numbers prior to you know 1995 if you ever wondered oh what what was uh, what was happening to impaired and disabled people in antiquity you'd read they were all killed at birth they were all babies were exposed mm. and other people were just left to, to sort of die in the street become beggars etc and there'd be no further information than that because it was not something that scholars were interested in. It was not something that they did the work to actually find out about. They just made assumptions based on one or two rather dodgy references in ancient literature. When, of course, if they looked at the archaeological record, 
they get a very different perspective on the whole topic. And, and so now there is enough scholarship to start really thinking about or allowing us to, to reconstruct the, the life of, of ancient people who happen to have impairments and disabilities. Are there any themes or areas that you'd potentially like to explore further? Well, I'm thinking now my next step is to start looking at the display of bodies and extraordinary bodies of all kinds, not not just people with impairments, but all sorts of, of other differences that made people interesting in the past. Because we do have references to what are clearly rather dodgy, you know, centaurs and mermaids and, and uh, mm. creatures like that being put on display in ancient Rome. That's something that clearly people were interested in. And what did they think about that? Were they interested in a sense of they were disgusted by it? Were they interested in a sense of they were fascinated? Think it was cool? Did they think it was desirable? And so I, I want to think more about that, this process by which people were, were displayed for sort of public consumption, because we do see stuff like that in more recent history and today, you know, the the idea of the of the circus, of the freak show. Mm -hmm of museum collections with human remains in them, paleopathological mm -hmm. cabinets, specimens, things like that. And so that's something that I want to explore. Mm -hmm. And I also want to try and see how much evidence there is for impairment and disability from the perspective of those people themselves, rather than from other people mm -hmm. who were just writing about them. And so that's something I, I, I need mm -hmm. to go back to the sources and, and start reading them with with fresh eyes and with with that in mind. I love the idea of looking in sort of like how bodies and things are displayed and the different perspectives. I mean, just thinking about what we've got in the University of Ontario Museum and the different specimens and things. Just in the last few years, there has been quite a shift in museum attitudes, you know, about mm. how how to curate these things, mm -hmm. how to should human remains be on display in museums? whose remains are on display, should they be, and this idea of repatriation of, or of reworking displays so that they tell slightly different stories. And I think that's really interesting because you can see a lot of the things that we do today are very much inspired by or in the same vein as, as what was being done in, in antiquity. And the same ideas as well about collecting. People collected stuff in antiquity, stuff they thought was interesting. Um, things like uh, fossils they collected. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of sort of dodgy dealing about where you got these things and, and what you did with them and, and people stealing them uh, as well. It's all part of the same thing, this idea of the what are the ethics behind collection and display and what kinds of stories are we trying to tell with these exhibitions and displays as well and who gets to tell the stories because people with impairments have for a long time not really found museums accessible because they couldn't necessarily read the information and then braille started to be put on the label so they could perhaps mm -hmm. touch those people with hearing impairments couldn't necessarily access the audio guides you're not allowed in many places to touch things. And of course, people can benefit quite a lot from tactile mm. experiences. This is now starting to be taken into account too. How do museums become more accessible to people with these different needs? Mm. Part of that is telling the stories about these sorts of people in the past. If you want to tell more diverse stories using museum collections and, and part of that involves telling stories about people with impairments and disabilities mm -hmm. in the past the obvious thing to do there is to involve impaired people disabled mm -hmm. people in how you tell those stories in an appropriate mm -hmm. tasteful accessible diverse way in terms of how those stories are currently told thinking about you know popular culture movies with or without gerard butler video games literature that kind of thing are those stories being told at the moment do you think I don't think they're being told as much or as well as they could be I mean if you think about James Bond for example now the franchise has been going for what 60 years and it's a fairly consistent part of the James Bond 
universe that the villain has got some kind of obvious disfigurement difference. So whether it's a scarred face or impaired hands covered in gloves or whatever, the way that we know that this person is the villain is because they look like one. And there have been so many attempts to call the makers of the James Bond films out about this. The most recent film with uh, the Daniel Craig's last film with Rami Malek in Scarred Face and Changing Faces, the, the a charity that uh, works for people with uh, facial differences have said again and again and again, this is really not okay. You, you are continuing this very old fashioned idea that villainy is visible. And something like uh, the recent Witches film, the, the remake of Roald Dahl's The Witches did a similar thing. They added actually disfigurements to the witches' faces and they weren't in the book. So why have they felt this need to add this? It's because this idea that you can see if someone's evil because they look evil. And so the fact that films and, well, other other you know, novels, games, TV shows, popular culture is still doing this, this idea that you can tell someone's bad because they look that way. Uh, so that's still happening. And clearly not with the agreement and connivance of those communities. They're, they're not happy about it. They don't want it to be happening, but it's still happening. So as long as that's going on, I think it's, it's clear that there is still a lot way to go as far as the sort of general public understanding of this is concerned and even uh, people themselves you make assumptions I mean plenty of people make assumptions they see someone get out of their car in a disabled space and they're not in a wheelchair so therefore why are they in a disabled space not everybody with a disability is a wheelchair user so we we could all do with educating ourselves the more I work on this topic the more I learn myself and the more I realize that I myself have to think about things in a different way and I have to be careful about the things that I say and the assumptions that I make. It is, it is an interesting process because language changes. I mean, just a few years ago, handicapped was, you know, an acceptable word to use and it is no longer an acceptable word to use. And disabled or differently abled or able-bodied, you know, so so this is something that that people need to pay attention to because you can cause so much offense by uh you know completely inadvertently and, and unintentionally but the fact is is that you you probably should have known better and you didn't so the the onus is on you to learn not the uh, disabled people to teach you in terms of the ancient literature is there any example of kind of the language use changing within it in the same way that we're kind of perhaps changing quite rapidly now that's a really interesting question because ancient literature is, of course, mediated by the translator. So the Greek and Latin terms that get used, sometimes they're neutral and sometimes they're not neutral. But at the same time, you could argue to look at them as as bad is, is a sort of type of, of political correctness gone mad because we're dealing with a different society with with a different cultural frame of reference but what's very clear is that people who were translating Greek and Latin in the recent past the last sort of hundred or so years the people that were translating the canonical works of literature that are the ones that most people are familiar with. So the, the people like Julius Caesar, Cicero, the people that wrote the mainstream historical sources that we we use in education and, and things like that. They add a lot of pejorative stuff into the sources that they didn't necessarily need to because they are viewing people with impairments in a negative way based on the sort of late mm. 19th early 20th century understanding they add that in in the same way that they add in misogyny where it's not necessarily originally in the text so the words that they choose to use make things perhaps more negative than they necessarily need to be there are ways that that you could refer to people you adjectives that you could use to describe them and they go straight for the worst one so they they, they would say crippled for example mm. when they could say lame or they they could use a, a different word altogether 
that's the kind of thing you have to be aware of when you're sort of reading this stuff that you're not necessarily reading it with the right eyes you're reading someone else's interpretation and so you you have to think about it for yourself you take for granted that what you're what you're reading is is the most accurate version and in fact it's Mm -hmm. it's not you can read two translations of the same piece of text and they can be quite different and it does depend on who's doing the translating and so this is something that I tell students because I teach a a course on impairment Mm -hmm. disability as part of the classics honours offerings one of the things I say to them in the very first lecture the introduction is that we will be looking at quite a lot of old translations of texts because these are not the texts that people necessarily thought it was important mm-hmm. to do brand new translations of they were translated once 100 years ago and, and that was mm-hmm. it because they're not popular ones mm-hmm. and so you know I say to the students you will read terms that we wouldn't use today and you have to bear that in mind when you're sort of thinking about this topic that so much of this it comes with quite a lot of cultural baggage in our culture and the previous cultures that have have stood between us and the ancient Greeks and Romans. Mm -hmm. So are there any examples of gods, of myth, that kind of thing? So far, we've touched on the roles of the medical professionals and the craftspeople as well. But I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a bit more about whether or not there was any connection with religion as well. One figure who jumps out to me with my admittedly limited knowledge of antiquity and the ancient world would be the god Hephaestus. I know there's obviously some relationship there between him and craftspeople, but also the ways in which he and his body were represented. So was there any relationship there, any connection? Is there any evidence either from the literature from the period or archaeological finds? Yeah, so the uh, the main one is, as, as you mentioned, um, Hephaestus, who's the ancient Greek god of crafts, of, of metalworking, creating sort of objects and things. He's a case in point, actually, because there are various different stories about how he became physically impaired. He has mm-hmm. some kind of lower limb issue. Sometimes it's depicted as a club foot or two club feet. Sometimes his legs are, are backwards. And there are various um, reasons given for this. He was born that way or he was thrown um, from Mount Olympus by Zeus and he landed on his feet. And he seems to have trouble walking. And this is something that many of the other gods find quite hilarious, the, the sight of him sort of shuffling around Mount Olympus. But he doesn't need to be physically perfect because he makes perfect creations and he makes himself assistive technology. And that is that is something that seems to be fairly common in antiquity, possibly inspired by Hephaestus, but possibly independently, that a lot of artisans are associated with physical impairment. The, the idea being that they use their talents to compensate for their impairment or their impairment has inspired their talents. You get accounts of artisans who, because they are not able to, to do other things they take up these these sedentary occupations of making things I think that that works quite well as as an idea that both that because they couldn't do more active pursuits they dedicated themselves to to crafts but also they used their own experiences to inform their their crafting so they were able to actually bring a more personal dimension to helping someone else with their assistive technology like oh yes I know exactly what you mean I'll I'll make it this way because I too have found this experience there's another interesting aspect to religion as well and it's that there are different religious systems at work in the ancient Mediterranean we have what we would call today paganism which is the sort of ancient Greek ancient Roman deities we have Christianity we have Judaism and they have different ideas about this stuff so in Judaism in the the Jewish literature, you get rabbis encouraging women to wear prosthetic eyes and teeth and things like that to make themselves more beautiful, to encourage men to marry them. And so comparing that to the ancient Greek and Roman ideas of prosthetic anything is inherently deceitful. 
these are very different perspectives on this same set of objects. And I think that's really interesting that you, you have these communities coexisting in antiquity but with, with very different ideas about similar sorts of things. And another interesting aspect of the, the Jewish tradition is that there are discussions, debates about whether you can use your prosthetic limb on the Sabbath because it's a tool and it's work. And that's interesting, this idea that they see it very much as this useful thing, this tool, this, this piece of equipment. But that also means that if you can't use your prosthetic, that means what you stay at home and you literally sit in one place and you're not allowed to move. There are even examples of you. You shouldn't if your tooth falls out, you shouldn't put it back in your mouth. And, and so that is interesting in itself, this idea that using prosthetic objects is effort, it's labor. And therefore you shouldn't do it because, of course, it is actually quite hard to walk with a prosthetic limb. And wearing a wig is quite time consuming and, and quite problematic to make sure that it, it stays where you put it and it doesn't you know, get crooked or it doesn't blow off. There is this aspect of using prostheses that people who don't use them don't necessarily appreciate. And that is just how difficult, how much physical effort is involved in using them, that how much they chafe on the the part of your stump that rubs up against them. You get blisters, you get callus. And so I didn't think about any of this stuff until I spoke to a prosthetist who told me that in his line of work, most of the people that he fits with prosthetic limbs are elderly people who have lost limbs through things like diabetes. And he said most of them don't actually use their prosthetic limbs because they're just too labor intensive and it's too much effort for them to relearn how to, to walk and everything else with the prosthetic limbs. Whereas when he deals with children on the rare occasions that he's dealing with, like people who've had meningitis, for example, he says the children take to them straight away and are just running around on their new legs, which is quite heartening, really, I suppose. I find it fascinating that you've got these different religions all at play in the ancient world and they've got such different and I guess contradictory ideas about the scenarios and situations in which you should or perhaps shouldn't be using a prosthesis. Yeah, that's a warning. It's a warning to me and, and to anybody else that just because mm. one ancient person or one type of ancient person thinks about something in, in one way, there are so many other people with other viewpoints that you have to take, try and take into account. And it was the same when I spoke to the prosthetist. There is not one standard modern mm -hmm. prosthetic user there are different people and they use them in very different ways and it adds so much depth and, and shading to thinking about this subject getting mm -hmm. these real life uh, examples if our listeners are interested in learning more about the things that we've been discussing today they can obviously read your recent monograph prosthetics and assistive technology in ancient greece and rome are there any other places where our listeners can find out more about your research? That's my book, my detailed, <laughs> in-depth work on the topic. I have an edited volume called Prostheses in Antiquity as well that looks at various different aspects of the whole thing. I've written for History Today and Argo. These are probably a little bit more accessible and certainly much cheaper than the academic books. And I also did a BBC You're Dead to Me podcast on the topic of ancient disability with the uh, comedian Rosie Jones and Greg Jenner, who is the host of that podcast. So there are all sorts of places that people could find more information if they want to, depending on their preference for platform. That's fair. And those obviously aren't your only works that are out there. I think we should definitely mention the other books that you published last year because you were quite busy. <laughs> I was certainly I was very busy uh, editing dealing with proofs although the these books were written over a period of several years. I have two edited volumes on um, video games. One women in classical video games and the other women in historical and archaeological video games. Mm -hmm. And so those are looking at all sorts of different video games that feature the ancient world and uh, other periods of history and archaeology as well. And I have another book, Cleopatra's Daughter, Egyptian Princess, Roman Prisoner, African Queen. And that is a historical biography 
of the daughter of Antony and Cleopatra and what happened to her after the deaths of her parents. Thanks again to Jane for joining us on the podcast today. I really hope you enjoyed our discussion as much as I did. If you're interested in checking out any of Jane's books, we've included links to those in the show notes, and that includes Prosthetics and Assistive Technology in Ancient Greece and Rome, Cleopatra's Daughter, Egyptian Princess, Roman Prisoner, African Queen, and also her edited volumes, and those are Women in Classical Video Games, which is co-edited with Kate Cook, and also Women in Historical and Archaeological Video Games. You can also keep up to date with Jane's research by following her on Twitter at JL Draycott. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time.